Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. and welcome to TGI Crime Day. Today's episode is the third and final part of the Murdoch story. If you have not already, make sure that you watch or listen to parts one and two. I will have those linked in the description of this episode so you can get all cut up before you start this final part. And by the way, while I was editing part two, I caught a few times where I accidentally said Alex instead of Alec. It's confusing because it's spelled Alex, but it's pronounced Alec. And there were a few times that I said Alex and I didn't even catch it until I was editing and I was so annoyed. So I'm sorry if that drove you absolutely nuts. Listen, we'll make a game of it this time. Every time I say Alex on accident, take a shot. Maybe don't because I said it quite a few times and you will be drunk. As a refresher for where we left off, Alec Murdoch was charged with 99 crimes ranging from tax evasion, money laundering, computer crimes, forgery, fraud, and just about everything in between. He was accused of stealing almost $9 million from clients and was charged with money laundering through a drug dealing scheme set up with his distant cousin, Curtis Edward Smith. A few months before Alex was forced to resign from the law firm that he had been stealing money from, his wife Maggie and their son Paul were tragically killed on their property and Alec was the one to make the 911 call after finding them. In the midst of all the court dates and indictments for his nearly 100 charges, He was then indicted and charged as the person who killed Maggie and Paul. Today, we are going to go over the trial, the evidence, and the eventual conviction of Alec Murdoch in these murders. When he was charged, his lawyers declared that he was nothing but a family man who had made some bad decisions because of his drug addiction, that he loved his family and would never hurt them. However, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, aka SLED, said that they worked tirelessly for 13 months searching every in and out of Paul and Maggie's deaths, eliminating any and all other persons of interest or suspects, and that led them directly to Alec Murdoch. When Alec was charged with the murders, people were definitely shocked, but not exactly surprised based on everything else going on. You might remember my favorite lawyer duo from the last episode, Ronnie Richter and Eric Bland. Here's hoping they are as fabulous as they seem because I'm going to feel like an idiot if I've been talking them up and they're not good people, but they seem lovely and all of their quotes were 10 out of 10. Awesome. So Ronnie Richter and Eric Bland, they were also the attorneys that were representing a lot of the people going up against Alex. I just did one. It's my only one for the episode. They were the lawyers going up against Alec, and they put out a statement saying, quote, it was expected, but still shocked. Just another shameful chapter in the downfall of an evil man devoid of morality. What is sad is the amount of victims that are in his wake. Clients, family members, law partners, colleagues, and friends. Alec was an equal opportunity victimizer, end quote. Seriously, the quotes on those guys awesome. Alec's attorneys accused Sled of being solely focused on Alec for no reason, saying that they had been trying to accuse him of this since day one, which I have to disagree with because there were a lot of other people who were investigated before they landed on Alec over a year after the murders. Paul had been facing multiple felony charges after the boating accident that he caused while drunk driving the boat that caused the death of Mallory Beach. The people close to Mallory, her parents, and the other boat crash survivors were all looked into because it was speculated that Maggie and Paul had been murdered as a revenge for Mallory's death. Everyone connected to Mallory was cleared through DNA and alibis and all of the evidence that went into clearing them. Alec was the last suspect left and they had evidence to prove that he was in fact the murderer. Paul and Maggie were murdered on the evening of June 7th, 2021. According to Alec, he got home late that night after visiting his parents and found Maggie and Paul's bodies near their hunting dog's kennels. Paul had been shot twice in the back and head near the entrance to the feed room for the dog kennels, and Maggie had been shot four or five times in the back, legs, and head. The way that her body was positioned made detectives believe that she was running away from her attacker, and they were able to determine that Paul had been shot with a shotgun while Maggie was shot with a semi-automatic rifle that had unique bullets and some of the shell casings were found at the scene. When Alec was indicted, the chief of SLED, Mark Keel, said, quote, Over the last 13 months, SLED agents and our partners have worked day in and day out to build a case against the person responsible for the murders of Maggie and Paul and to exclude those who were not. At no point did agents lose focus on this investigation. From the beginning, I have been clear. The priority was to ensure justice was served. 
Today is just one more step in a long process for justice for Paul and Maggie, end quote. Chief Keel and Attorney General Alan Wilson did not originally give information on the exact evidence that led them to Alec. It was kept very vague at this point because this case was highly publicized and they couldn't risk the integrity of the case. So at first, all that was said was that they were able to determine that Paul and Maggie had been murdered with two different weapons and that the two pieces of evidence that put Alec in the spotlight were blood spatter found on Alec at the crime scene and a Snapchat video that Paul made the night of his death. A source close to the investigation told CNN that a source close to the investigation told CNN that the investigators started to doubt Alec's story when they saw the blood splatter. Quote, the blood spatter could place Murdoch in close contact with at least one of the victims when they were killed. High-velocity spatter is associated with the use of a particular weapon, such as a rifle, and it creates a specific blood pattern, especially when used at close range. End quote. The time-stamped video on Paul's phone did not show Alec, but his voice can be heard off-camera close to the time of the murders. Alec pleaded not guilty at his indictment hearing and still insisted that he was not home that evening. Obviously, you need more than blood spatter and cell phone audio to convict someone for a double murder, but that was all that was originally released in an attempt to keep the integrity of this investigation because so many people were invested. I think that a lot of us can say, me too. Both sides, prosecuting and defense, agreed to keep the details as quiet as possible so that a jury could be formed and remain as neutral as possible. Alec's team pushed for a speedy trial, saying that Alec wanted to clear his name so that the investigation could continue and that the actual guilty person would be caught. There was a lot that happened between his indictment hearing and the actual trial, including Alec being charged with a few more crimes of obtaining property under false pretenses, more money laundering, and more computer crimes. The PNPED law firm discovered that Alec had stolen another $400,000 from the firm. One of these incidents was when Alec was mistakenly handed a check from the firm for a loan repayment. Apparently, this $121,000 check was supposed to be written to his brother, so he did the right thing, and he told PMPED that there had been a mistake. They rewrote the check to the correct Murdoch brother, but this is Alec, so the whole doing the right thing part didn't stick around for long, and Alec took both of the checks and cashed them in his own name. They also found that he took about $175,000 in settlements that were supposed to go directly to the law firm. I read multiple articles about the back and forth that happened before the trial. In August of 2022, Alex attorneys Dick Harpulitan and Jim Griffin continued to accuse the state grand jury prosecutor Creighton Waters of withholding evidence and quote-unquote hiding the ball. So the prosecution was fighting to keep evidence away from the public, and the defense was arguing that they needed to have every piece of evidence turned over so that they could prepare for a trial. Dick Harpulitan said that the prosecution was trying to, quote-unquote, hold trial by ambush, and said that they were hijacking evidence. Quote, I don't trust the state to honor the rules. They haven't so far at this point. Every time we turn around, they are trying to hide something. End quote. Creighton Waters argued back, quote, I don't play fast and loose, end quote, and said that they hadn't leaked any information. He added, quote, none of this is to preclude a public trial. Everything will come out in the open. All this is meant to do is have it come out when it's supposed to, and that's in the courtroom, end quote. With a case like this, all the corruption and scandal of this hugely known family is something that South Carolina had never really seen before. The right piece of information could be sold to the wrong person for a lot of money, and then the whole case can be compromised, and they can't take it to trial, etc. During this hearing, where they were going back and forth for 45 minutes, Waters and Harpulitan argued their points and threw a lot of insults at one another until Judge Clifton Newman cut them off, saying that he would not have them arguing with each other and made a final decision. I kind of just imagine this judge sitting there while they yell back and forth at each other and then finally being like, okay, knock it off. Like he's an angry mom, like pulling apart her fighting children. Anyways, that's how I imagine it because it seems like there was a lot of tension between these two attorneys, which is fair. Anyways, Judge Newman agreed that the state had an obligation to turn over evidence to the defense and issued a temporary protective order that restricted the defense from releasing any of that information. The search warrants and affidavits were also unsealed at that time. Okay, I know I can be really hard on defense attorneys because of people like Jose Baez who will go out of their way to go to any lengths to get their clients out of something that they're absolutely guilty for, but defense attorneys are very important to the justice system. Without them, any random person could be convicted of a crime that they didn't commit, and everyone has a right to a good lawyer that knows what they're doing. I think I just wish that when someone was guilty, the defense attorney would be there to make sure that their client isn't given outrageous charges and to make sure that their client is aware of their rights, etc. However, a lot of the time with defense attorneys, it's like, 
okay, my client's guilty, but how can I create enough reasonable doubt just to get them out of it? Like it's a game or something that they're going to win at pulling the wool over everyone's eyes? I don't know. I truly hope that the defense attorneys in Alex's case genuinely believe that he's innocent. As part of their defense strategy, they suggested that Curtis Smith could be the guilty person in Maggie and Paul's murders. As a reminder from what we went over in the last episode, Curtis Smith is the man Alec ran a years-long drug trafficking scheme with and money laundering scheme, and then he was also charged with trying to help Alec commit insurance fraud by planning a suicide that would look like a murder. Alec said that he had set this up so that it would look like he had been murdered, and then his son Buster could collect the $10 million life insurance policy on his behalf. Curtis insists that he had nothing to do with Alec's plan and that he was set up to take the fall when Alec was shot in the head on the side of the road three months after Paul and Maggie's deaths. He admitted that he was there when the gun went off and that he disposed of this weapon, but he said that he wasn't in on any of this planning. According to Curtis, Alec just called him to help with car trouble, and when Curtis got there, Alec was waving the gun around, they started wrestling, the gun went off, and then Curtis took the weapon and ran for it. But he was convicted of being part of the murder plot. It's all insane. Dick Harpulitan and Jim Griffin filed a motion alleging that Curtis had failed a lie detector test when he was asked about Maggie and Paul's murders. Alex's team accused the state of turning a blind eye to evidence that Curtis was involved in the murders, and the evidence that they presented was that during a polygraph test, Curtis was asked if he was present during the murders and if he shot Maggie and Paul, and allegedly, the test, quote, indicated attempted deception. So first of all, polygraph tests are not reliable. They aren't admissible in court because of the fact that they aren't reliable and they are never 100% correct, like ever. I don't totally understand why polygraph tests are still used because of how unreliable they are and how you can't even use them for anything anyways. Maybe it's just a interview tactic because if someone is guilty, they'll freak out and confess. I don't know. But in my opinion, if the only evidence you really have against someone is a lie detector test, that's not a strong enough piece of evidence to get a conviction. But again, one of the goals of the defense team is to raise enough reasonable doubt to get a jury on the side of their client. And don't get me wrong here. I don't think that Curtis Smith is a good person or even a law-abiding person. So by no means am I standing up for that guy. But there is a pretty big jump from like money laundering scams to murder. You know what I mean? So according to Curtis, he was 35 miles away from the Moselle property the night of the murders with his girlfriend and two buddies. Allegedly, investigators never interviewed those people to confirm his alibi, and they didn't contact these people until weeks after Curtis's interview, which could possibly have given him time to get them on board to cover for him. So like, fair enough. Okay, follow up with every lead. But Alex's team floated the idea that because Curtis had delivered drugs to Moselle many times, maybe he was doing a drug deal that night that was witnessed by Maggie and Paul, and that caused Curtis to murder them. It's weak, okay? It's a weak idea. That doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I feel like it's a stretch, but that's still a better explanation than the story that Curtis came up with to defend himself, which possibly made him look worse, in my opinion. Curtis said, quote, Maggie had a thing going on with the groundskeeper, which I never met, don't know his name. And Paul went down into one of the barns and caught him and he got upset and he went and got his rifle and was hollering and screaming at his mama. His mama was running and she fell down and she got up. He shot her in the ass and the bullet came out the top of her head and then he turned to the groundskeeper guy. But the groundskeeper already went to his truck and got a shotgun, end quote. So Curtis wants everyone to believe that Paul caught Maggie having an affair with this random person that he cannot name or identify. And then Paul was mad enough to shoot his mother with a rifle, and then the guy went and got a shotgun and killed Paul, and then took both of the weapons and disappeared? I don't... You should have just stayed quiet and said you didn't know anything instead of coming up with something so stupid. The defense said that Alec was being accused based on very minimal evidence, including, quote, a minuscule amount of blood found on his t-shirt that they said got there from when Alec, quote, frantically attended to his wife's body, end quote. Which actually made me more suspicious of him because if he was touching Maggie and Paul's bodies in a frantic state, wouldn't he have a ton of blood on him? If he had been covered head to toe in blood, I would feel less suspicious than if he only had a tiny bit of blood on him that looked more like blood spatter that was so minuscule they had to find it under testing. That would feel less suspicious than him only having a tiny bit of blood on him that looked more like blood spatter from being close to Maggie when she was shot. And if he was hysterical and frantic, like he said he was, it's not like he would have been thinking that he needs to preserve a crime scene. 
Okay, what do you guys think of this? I want to know other people's opinions on this because you absolutely cannot say what you will do in a moment of an emergency. And everyone reacts differently to these types of situations. I just truly don't see how he would have had no other blood on him, not even on his hands, if he was trying to help her and see what was going on. Also, Alex Lawyer said that Sledge should have done tests on Maggie and Paul's clothing to make sure that one of them didn't shoot the other. And again, if one of them shot the other person, who shot the second person and where did the guns go? Because they certainly weren't at the scene. So it's just these little things of like trying to point fingers and poke holes in certain situations that I'm like, it's weak. It's so weak. It would take me another two episodes to completely cover the back and forth of the court trial, but I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to go through the evidence that was presented in court and get through it as concisely as possible. The trial against Alex started on January 23rd, 2023 and lasted a little over a month. Dick Harpulitan said early in the trial, quote, there are no eyewitnesses. There is nothing on camera. There's no forensics tying him to the crime. None, end quote. Um, that's quite a statement to make at the trial where there was enough evidence to convince a judge that it could go to trial, but okay. First of all, the prosecution had to prove that Alec was at Moselle the night of the murders. According to Alec, he and Paul had taken a drive around Moselle, talking about planting sunflowers and doing some other yard work. And then they had dinner with Maggie. Then Maggie and Paul decided to go down to the dog kennels. He supposedly took a nap and then went to visit his mom, Libby, who had Alzheimer's. Alec's dad was also very ill and in the hospital at the time, so Libby had caretakers at her home around the clock. Alec said that he didn't see Maggie or Paul at all before their deaths. During a six-hour cross-examination, he was grilled about the fact that he lied to his clients, to law enforcement, to his family, and that he had stolen and cheated and did all of these things like it was no big deal. So why would they believe him when he says that he wasn't there and had nothing to do with Paul and Maggie's deaths when he just lies constantly? Alec continued to say that he was not there and had not seen them at all before he went to visit his mom. That is, until prosecution showed a body cam video from one of the officers at the scene, and there was also that Snapchat video from Paul's phone that proved, without a doubt, that Alec was at the dog kennels shortly before the murders. A Snapchat video was given to investigators after they provided a warrant to look into Paul's cell phone activity. Also, friendly reminder that nothing you send on Snapchat actually disappears forever. They keep all of your stuff. Forever. Okay? Be careful. Anyways... Paul sent a Snapchat video to several of his friends of one of the dogs in the kennel where Maggie and Alec are heard talking in the background. Paul was taking a video inside the kennel with the dog when Maggie is suddenly heard talking about one of the other dogs, Bubba, who ran up with a chicken in his mouth. And Alec can also be heard talking to Maggie and Bubba. It's very clearly him. It's actually really incredible that this was even caught. The video is only about 55 seconds long. He wasn't even trying to capture Maggie and Alec. Bubba just happened to run up with a chicken in his mouth at that moment, and, th and that tiny piece of evidence was enough to unravel Alec's actual whereabouts. The night of his death, Paul had been texting a close family friend, Rogan Gibson, and they had a phone call around 8.44 p.m., and then Rogan texted Paul at 8.49 p.m., but Paul suddenly stopped responding. They had been texting about a puppy that Rogan had staying at the dog kennels, and the dog had gotten an injury, and he was asking Paul to send him photos of that injury. Rogan tried to call Paul five times between 8.45 and 10.08 p.m. He eventually texted Maggie and asked her to tell Paul to call him, but Maggie and Paul's cell phones were both locked around 8.49 p.m. and never used again. These two pieces of evidence forced Alec to admit that he had been lying to investigators. He finally admitted that he was at the dog kennels that night, but still insisted that he had nothing to do with their murders. He said, quote, On June 7th, I wasn't thinking clearly. I don't think I was capable of reason, and I lied about being down there, and I'm so sorry that I did, end quote. Alec blamed his opioid addiction, causing him to feel paranoid and distrust for the police. They swabbed his hands for gunshot residue, which is not a strange thing to do at all in an investigation where you are the person who found the bodies, but he said that having his hands swabbed made him feel like a suspect, and he panicked and started lying. He wept on the stand saying, quote, I would never do anything intentionally to hurt either one of them, end quote. His lawyer, Jim Griffin, asked him while he was on the stand if he had lied to investigators, and he said, quote, Once I lied, I continued to lie. Yes, sir, I had to keep lying, end quote. Did you? Did you have to keep lying? Prosecutor Creighton Waters brought up the fact that Alec lied to investigators the moment they started questioning him before they did the gunshot residue testing and all of that. In footage from the inside of a cop car, Alec told Sergeant Daniel Green that he didn't see Paul and Maggie at all 
in the 45 minutes from when he took a nap until he left to go see his mom. Creighton Waters said, quote, You've been able to lie quickly and easily and convincingly if you think it'll save your skin for well over a decade, end quote. As I mentioned before, Libby Murdoch had Alzheimer's and had caretakers at her home 24-7. Shelly Smith was the caretaker the evening of June 7th, and she testified in court saying that Alec had visited Libby sometime between 8.30 and 9.30 p.m. and that he didn't usually visit that late in the day. Libby was asleep the whole time he was there, and Shelly testified that her worsening dementia made conversation impossible. For about 15 or 20 minutes, Alec sat with her and held her hand, and then he left. Shelly said that Alex seemed kind of fidgety that night, but that wasn't abnormal for him. When Shelly heard about the murders of Paul and Maggie the next day, she was shocked. And to make things even worse for this family, a few days after the murders, Alex's dad, Randolph, passed away after a long-term illness, and they had a memorial for him at Libby and Randolph's house. Alex saw Shelly again that day and told her, quote, If someone asks you, I was here for 30 or 40 minutes, end quote. Shelly testified in court that Alec also offered to help pay for her wedding and told her that he knew the principal at the school where she worked. Shelly was horrified when she had this conversation with him. He immediately called her brother, who is in law enforcement, to tell him about this little exchange that they had. Shelly also testified that she saw Alec bring what looked like a blue tarp into the house and put it into one of the rooms. She said that she never saw Alec visit as early as 6.30 a.m., but the day that he was there bright and early, he had this bundle in his arms. In September of 2021, investigators removed a blue tarp that was stored with some dishes in a bedroom closet, as well as a blue raincoat from a coat closet at Libby and Randolph's house. The inside of this raincoat tested positive for gunshot residue, which led to speculation that it was wrapped around a recently shot weapon. Shelly did say that she thought it was a tarp that Alec brought into the house, not a raincoat, I kind of wonder if maybe the coat could have looked like a tarp if she didn't get a good look at it. I don't know, but they found this coat that had gunshot residue on the inside of it. Another important piece of evidence is obviously to confirm whether or not Alec could have had access to the weapons used to kill Maggie and Paul. Murdoch's had plenty of guns, including shotguns and the 300 blackout rifle that was used to kill Maggie. The casings from the blackout rifle were found at the murder scene, and there was a box of the same ammunition found in the Murdoch's gun closet. The Murdoch family had previously owned two custom-made blackout rifles that were gifts to Paul and Buster for Christmas in 2016. Apparently, at some point in 2017, Paul's gun had been stolen or lost or just misplaced on the property. Yikes of bikes. Don't get me started on the gun situation. Uh, apparently, they bought him a replacement gun, but that gun has never been found. The Murdochs also owned multiple 12-gauge shotguns, which was the weapon that was used to kill Paul. In September of 2021, a YouTuber named Eric Allen received a tip that police were going to be doing a search of the Moselle property, and he was very and he was very brave and maybe a little insane, but I respect it. And he decided to fly his drone over the Moselle property to see if he could catch anything going on. Eric said that when he went to the property, he didn't see cop cars or anything, so he just assumed that he missed the search. But later when he looked through his drone footage, he realized that he had video of Buster and John Marvin loading several items into the truck from the house, including eight guns, other hunting equipment, and some of the hunting dogs. Now, this could just be an innocent hunting trip, nothing suspicious about it, but it seems like strange timing. Multiple shotguns were taken from the Murdoch house and tested, but were ruled inconclusive as far as deciding if one of these was or was not the murder weapon. There were also multiple guns that were just unaccounted for that have never been found. Because there were two guns used, the defense said that there had to have been two attackers. Their theory was based on the opinion of a forensic engineer who testified for the defense. And real quick, it's so hard in these cases because there are people who are considered quote-unquote expert witnesses in specific knowledge. But here's the thing. They are hired by either the prosecution or the defense, and they are going to hire the person who is going to take their side, right? And I mean this for both sides, the guilty and the innocent. You're not going to hire an expert that's going to present evidence in court that goes against what you're fighting for. So I think that expert testimony has to be kind of taken with a grain of salt on either side, no matter which way you cut it, who's innocent, who's guilty, that expert is getting paid a lot of money to share their opinion. So just, you know, grain of salt. The expert who testified for the defense said that two shooters was a viable option, and based on the trajectory of the bullets, both of the shooters would have had to have been between 5'2 and 5'4, and Alec is 6'2, so bam, innocent, he's too tall to have committed this crime and shot both of them with different weapons. Seriously? That's what we're going with. The prosecution's expert argued that while it's possible that there could have been two shooters, it is not possible to determine the height of a shooter based on shotgun wounds. 
Sled agent Matilda Worley said that the two-shooter theory was not the only explanation, that it could have been one person who was moving around. So yes, while it could have been two people, it also could have been one person who was just following them, especially given the fact that Paul had been shot in the feed room and Maggie's injuries showed that she had been running away when she was followed by her attacker. The state's expert witness, Kenneth Kinsey, told Attorney General Alan Wilson that the theory that the gunman has to be shorter than Alec was quote-unquote preposterous. Again, you have to look carefully at both sides' expert witnesses, but keep in mind that just because something is possible doesn't mean that it's plausible. As I mentioned earlier, there was some blood evidence that could point to Alec as the shooter. In a pretrial motion, Alec's team was fighting to have the blood spatter expert's testimony thrown out of the trial. The defense said that this blood spatter expert used, quote, weird at-home science fair experiments, end quote, to construct his opinion. Sorry, that, that one does make me laugh. Because Tom Bevel was the expert who did the analysis on the t-shirt that Alec was wearing the night of the murders. And this is another example of how expert opinions have to be taken with caution. There are certain things that are exact science, and then there are other things that are open to interpretation. For example, blood spatter analysis. If you know about the trial of Michael Peterson, who was convicted of killing his wife, Kathleen Peterson, aka the staircase trial. He eventually took an Alford plea and is now out of prison, but one of the things that led to his conviction was the testimony of a blood spatter expert, Dwayne Deaver, who was eventually fired from the company he worked for after they found out that he had falsified evidence in at least 34 cases, and at least one of those had led to a wrongful conviction. I'm not saying that's what happened in Alex's case, but it definitely does happen, and the blood spatter expert in Alex's case changed his opinion a couple of times. There was definitely DNA found on Alec's t-shirt from Maggie and Paul. His attorneys argued that this was because he had touched their bodies when he tried to help them after he found them both shot. Which again, if you're listening to the audio only, you can't see the photo. But there's footage of Alec in the police car right after they arrived at the scene and he is completely clean. There was blood everywhere at this scene. It was extremely gruesome. And if he touched them as much as he said he did, how was he wearing a spotless white t-shirt with no bloodstains on it? The prosecution argued that the t-shirt had tiny blood spatter stains that would happen if someone were at a close range when a person was shot. And to uphold that argument, they relied heavily on Tom Bevel's findings that there were, quote, 100 plus stains that are consistent with spatter on the front of the t-shirt, end quote. And to that, Alex's attorneys alleged that the first tests showed no human blood. Now, he had blood on him because he touched them so much, or there was no blood on him, which is it because it can't be both. Their motion to the judge said, quote, Sled retained Mr. Bevel to opine that the t-shirt is stained with high-velocity blood spatter that could only come from being in proximity with them at the time of their murders. It did so even though the state knew on August 10, 2021, almost six weeks before reaching out to Mr. Bevel on September 21st, that confirmatory blood test results were definitively negative for human blood in all areas of the shirt where purported spatter is present, end quote. This t-shirt was apparently destroyed from testing performed by Tom Bevel when he used a chemical to detect bloodstains that turned the shirt purple. Defense called this, quote, a necessary application of an oxidizing chemical stain, end quote. I assume it was something like luminol or something of that sort. Seems like a reasonable thing to do for a blood test for bloodstains, but the defense was not stoked about this. They said any further experiments would be compromised by this chemical. In Tom Bevel's initial report, he concluded that there was no velocity blood splatter on the shirt and believed that the stains on the shirt were, in fact, contact stains. He also said that he would expect, quote, little to no spatter on the shooter or their clothing. But after looking at the evidence a second time, Bevel changed his opinion because he examined the shirt with the chemical on it. The defense said that this was, quote unquote, fabricated evidence, but Bevel said that his opinion changed because he was able to more closely examine the shirt after he requested more photos and was able to take a closer look. His second conclusion was that if the shooter was close enough, they would have a fine mist of blood spatter on their clothing, which is what he could see. The change of opinion there could be suspicious, or it could be that it's good to change your opinion when you have more facts and more evidence. If he did a second test and was able to look closer at these things, and then he was able to see the stains that he didn't see the first time around, that's fair. You're allowed to update your opinion based on new information that points in a different direction. You know what I mean? You don't just double down because you don't want the evidence to prove what you don't want it to prove. I don't know. The defense questioned his methods and said that he had no actual credentials to be an expert witness since he was a retired police officer with no formal scientific training. Fair enough. That does not look good on the prosecution. Alec told investigators that when he found Paul and Maggie, he had tried to take their pulses 
And he said that he had touched both of them, but tried to be careful to preserve any evidence, which is fair. He's a lawyer, so he's familiar with how crime scene processing works. Fulton County Sheriff's Office Detective Laura Rustland testified that Alec didn't have any blood on him at the scene. She also said that there were no footprints or knee prints anywhere near the bodies that would show that he got close to them like he said he did. And again, this crime scene was horrific. There was blood everywhere, and there is no way that someone could walk through that and not get it on their shoes or their clothes if he was touching them as much as he said he did. I'm going to try not to get too graphic, but I do want to explain their injuries because they are unimaginable and horrendous. So Paul had been shot at close range. He had been shot in the head, causing his skull to be blown apart. His brain was completely detached from his body. Alex said that he ran over to Paul and tried to flip him over so that he could take his pulse. Alex said, quote, I think I tried to turn Paul over first. I tried to turn him over. I don't know. I figured it out. And his cell phone popped out of his pocket and I tried to do something with it, thinking maybe, but then I put it back down really quickly, end quote. According to Detective Rustland's testimony, Paul's hands were under his body. It didn't seem like he had been moved at all, which Alec would have had to do if he were trying to take his pulse. And I just think that this story seems odd, given the state that Paul's body was in. It seems unlikely to me that Alex could have thought that he would be able to find a pulse, given the injuries that Paul had sustained. And again, he had no blood on his hands or clothes or shoes or the bottom of his shoes, nothing. Special Agent Matilda Worley was cross-examined and Dick Harpulitan brought up some issues with securing the crime scene. Agent Worley did admit that there were some problems there. There was a bloody footprint that was left by an officer as they walked through the crime scene. Harpulitan asked her if police should be walking through the scene. She said no. He asked if the scene was preserved to the standard it should be, and she said, quote, not exactly no. At the crime scene, Paul and Maggie's bodies were covered with sheets instead of tarps, even though it was raining and a witness said that there was water from the dog kennel roof dripping onto Paul's body. Not great and could definitely compromise evidence on their bodies if they are out in the rain with just a sheet and not a tarp. There were also a lot of people in and out of the scene. There were first responders walking through areas that were taped off and they didn't lock down the main house. The next morning, the Murdoch's housekeeper was let in just like it was a regular day, and she cleaned the house the way that Maggie liked it, and she washed a pair of pants and a towel that she found on the floor. Later in court, this housekeeper said that Alec had texted her and asked her to basically just clean the house the way that Maggie liked it, um, as if he were trying to kind of do that for Maggie as something that would be nice, but she basically was cleaning up evidence. When she was cleaning, there were investigators that were at the house, and no one stopped her from touching anything. Again, doesn't look great. This property was like 1,700 acres or so. It wasn't secured, it wasn't locked down, and law enforcement released it back to the Murdochs the day after the murders. Alex's brother, John Marvin, remembered how quickly they released the scene and said that he had cleaned up part of the crime scene in the area where Paul's body was found. So there are a few things that don't look great for the prosecution. They were not handling things the way that they should have been all the time. The idea that the property wasn't secured, there could have been evidence anywhere, that's insane to me. 1,700 acres? Someone could be hiding anywhere. Anything could have been dumped anywhere. However, with those things, I still don't think that there was a huge piece of evidence that was a big red flag that the defense needed to prove that Alec was innocent and being treated unfairly. The prosecution had a couple more things going for their side. First of all, Alec was seen in a Snapchat video taken at 7.56, a little less than an hour before the one at the dog kennels. Paul and Alec had been driving around the property taking care of a few things, and in the Snapchat video, Alec is seen wearing a blue short-sleeve button-up type shirt with long khaki pants. Later that night, when police interviewed him after he called 911, he was wearing a white t-shirt and shorts. The button-up shirt has never been found. I wish so badly that he had been seen and not just heard on that second Snapchat video to see what he was wearing. Alex said that the reason he changed clothes was because he was sweaty and dirty from going around the property with Paul, and he showered before he went to see his mom. But my question is this. If the first Snapchat video happened at 7.56, and the second one was at 8.44, is that enough time for them to get back up to the house, eat dinner, take a shower, take a nap, and then leave for his mom's house? Maybe? But he also said that he didn't go down to the kennels at all, and that was obviously a lie, so that time frame for them to do all of those things is even smaller from the time of the first Snapchat video to the time of the second Snapchat video. I don't know. It's all ridiculous. Blanca Turibate Simpson, their housekeeper, testified that she saw Alec the morning of the murders wearing that blue button-up shirt that was pictured in that Snapchat video. She remembered because she fixed the collar for him that morning, and she testified that after that day, she never saw that shirt again. She also said on the stand that two months after the murders, 
Alec was pacing back and forth in front of her, telling her that he was wearing a Vineyard Vines shirt that day. Blanca said this was very confusing to her because she was already positive about what he had been wearing. Prosecution pointed to this as yet another time that Alec tried to convince people to go along with his narrative about what happened that day. So between him telling Blanca, I was wearing this shirt, remember I was wearing this shirt, and then telling Shelly, the caretaker at his mom's house, I was here for this amount of time. Like, why are you taking all of these steps and creating all of these things and pushing these narratives if you're innocent? Paul, Maggie, and Alec's cell phones were a huge part of piecing together what exactly happened that night. I already talked a bit about Paul's phone, but there's a little bit more to it. He, he sent a text at 8.48 and got a reply back eight seconds later, but that text was never opened. Maggie's last phone activity was at 8.49. At 8.54 and 9.06, her phone went from portrait to landscape orientation, showing that it was in someone's hand. At 9.07, the screen went on and then off again as if someone had tried and failed to unlock it. At 9.04, Alec called Maggie, and then at 9.08, he sent a text saying, quote, going to check on M, be right back. Alec called Maggie's phone five times between 9.04 and 10.03, and then he called 911 at 10.07 after he allegedly found their bodies. In the beginning, when he was still lying about not being at the dog kennels, inve investigators asked him why he didn't just drive down to the kennels on his way out, and he said that he just hadn't felt like driving down there, so he sent a text letting Maggie know where he was going. But obviously that was proved untrue once that Snapchat video came out, and everyone then knew that he was at the kennels at one point, so why are you texting her again? At 8.53, Maggie's phone recorded 59 steps. Maggie's phone wasn't found at the crime scene. It was found a few days later thanks to the Find My iPhone feature. It was found dumped on the side of the road about a quarter of a mile from their property. GPS data from Alec's phone and truck showed that he drove past that spot on the road the night of the murders and the prosecution alleged that he threw the phone out of the window to dispose of evidence. However, there is a little bit of confusion there because Maggie's phone wasn't tracking steps at 9.06 when Alec's phone was tracking steps and then he started his truck at 9.06 and then called Maggie's phone. On Maggie's call logs, it shows those calls from Alec, but he had apparently attempted to delete those calls from his own call log because they don't show up on his. Alec's phone had some very interesting data as well. From 8.09 to 9.02, no steps were recorded. 79 steps were recorded from 8.05 to 8.09, and 283 steps were recorded in four minutes between 9.02 and 9.06. The amount of steps that Alec was taking in that time was called into question because he went from having very little activity to a flurry of steps, and then his phone was just at the house, he said, and then he walked more than 70 steps per minute within that four-minute time frame, which was way out of the norm compared to the rest of the day, from what I understand. In court, one of the attorneys kind of was grilling him about that and was like, why were you so busy at that time? What were you so busy doing right after they got murdered that you were running around getting in your steps? And he basically just told them that he wasn't doing anything that he shouldn't have been. So that's... It's those little things that start to piece together what happened. And if he genuinely had nothing to do with it, you just have the worst timing in the whole world. You just have the worst luck in the entire world. Data from General Motors showed that Alec's Chevy Suburban was started at 9.07. One minute later, he was driving at 42 miles per hour when he passed the spot where Maggie's phone was found. After passing the spot, the car accelerated to 52 miles per hour and then was traveling at a high speed all the way to his mom's house. See, now data is not an opinion. You can't fake these specific things. It's just, it's data. It's what the phone is actually picking up. You can't doctor them to look a certain way to fit a narrative. The evidence just points where it points. Also, isn't it terrifying how much our technology tracks literally every move we make from the time you pick up your phone and the screen turns on to the times that you unlock and lock your phone to when you picked it up to when you were walking to when you were driving. It's a lot. As I mentioned before, Maggie's phone showed that the screen went on and then off at 9.07 and then the screen stayed off until the call came in around 9.31. 9.07 would be the exact time he drove past that spot on the road and allegedly threw it out the window. So it's in his hand and then it's out the window. So it turned on, it turned off. Again, you can't fake these pieces of evidence. You can't take a cell phone company and a GPS company and force them to line up. They just did. He started the car at 9.06, her phone turned on at 9.07, and then was suddenly in a field next to a spot where he sped up. Also, another huge red flag was shown in court because of the cell phone and car data. Alex said that he arrived back at Moselle, immediately got out of his car at the kennels, and ran over to Paul's body, turning him over, checking for a pulse. 
Then he said he went to Maggie's body, touched her body, tried to help her, etc. But the car data shows that he arrived in the location of the kennels at 10.05.57. He called 911 17 seconds later at 10.06.14. And another thing that the cell phone showed was that he got to his parents' house at 9.22 and left at 9.43. 21 minutes. Not the 30 to 40 minutes he tried to convince Shelly that he was there and tried to get her to go along with that. And definitely not the 45 minutes that Alec told police that he was there when they first interviewed him. His car data also showed that his maximum speed was between 74 and 80 miles per hour through neighborhoods and back roads the entire way to and from his parents' house, roads that are definitely not marked at high speeds. And in court, when they asked him about this, he kind of was like, I don't know, that's how I always drive my car. But they were able to look at his car data to see if he was generally driving at a super high speed on these roads. And all of his other car data showed that his maximum speed on these roads was between 54 and 60 miles per hour. So no, he didn't just always drive at a super high speed to and from the places he was going. So you've got evidence, but there is obviously one other thing that is very important in getting a murder conviction, motive. Why? What would make Alec, who has claimed to be nothing but a loving father and wonderful husband, do something so horrendous? to his own family members. The lying and the cheating and the stealing and the money laundering is obviously awful and Alec is not a good person, he's awful, okay? He lies like it's a second language. But jumping to murder is a very big leap in my opinion. He said on the stand that once he started lying, he just couldn't stop to his family, to his law firm, to his clients, to law enforcement. The fact that he didn't tell the truth about one single thing in his life ever did not help this case when he tried to deny committing the murders. It's like with Scott Peterson or Casey Anthony, who tell these ridiculous, insane, obnoxious stories so easily and then are shocked when no one believes that they didn't commit the murders that they are accused of. I just can't wrap my head around this type of human who just lies like it's a second language. The motive that the prosecution presented was that Alec had found himself in over his head. His web of lies was coming loose, and he needed to do something to get people off of his back. Prosecutor Clayton Waters said that Alec was, quote, on a hamster wheel of constantly having to borrow and earn and steal just to keep kicking the can down the road and to stay above water. An exhaustive hamster wheel, a slow burn that was heating up and heating up, end quote. The CEO of the PMPED law firm, Jeanne Seconder, testified that she confronted Alec the day of the murders. She brought up the missing funds and the investigation that was being started looking into the money that Alec had stolen. At that time, it was just the beginning of the end. They had started noticing the missing funds and had just started to dig a little bit deeper into it. Jan said that when she spoke to Alec that day, he seemed kind of annoyed, but during this conversation, he got a phone call about his father's health issues and the tone completely changed. She told Alec that they would pick up the conversation another day and that night, Maggie and Paul were killed. Jeanne said after the murders, quote, Everyone rallied to Alec's aid. We weren't going to harass him when we were primarily concerned about his mental status with his wife and child getting killed, end quote. When she was asked further about Alec's character, she said, quote, He was successful not from his work ethic, but his ability to establish relationships and manipulate people into settlements and clients into liking him. The art of bullshit, basically, end quote. Claps for Jeanne for telling it like it is. A managing partner for the firm, Ronnie Crosby, also testified. He said that Alec was good with people and good at making them believe that he cared about them. Ronnie was really close with the Murdoch family. Alec's kids called him Uncle Ronnie, and he got really emotional as he described his relationship with Paul on the stand. He agreed with Jeanne that the investigation into Alec's financial situation was put away after the tragic deaths of Paul and Maggie. Both of these testimonies, among others, supported the state's theory that Alec committed the murders to buy himself time to dig himself out of the financial hole he had dug himself into. Something else that was brought up in court was the fact that Maggie didn't even plan on being at the Moselle property the night of their murders. According to Maggie's sister, Marion Proctor, Maggie and Paul had been at the family's property in Adisto Beach that day, and Marion spoke with her and she said that she wasn't planning on going to Moselle, but Marion encouraged her to go be there with Alec because his dad's health was declining and his mom was going through a lot because of her Alzheimer's. Marion testified that she told Maggie that day, quote, go be with him if he needs you, end quote. That was the last time that these sisters ever spoke. Marion testified that she was surprised to hear that Maggie hadn't gone with Alec to his mom's house, since that was kind of the reason that she went to Moselle that night, as far as Marion knew. When Alec was asked why Maggie didn't go with him, he said, quote, Maggie didn't really like to visit my mom, end quote. That might be true, 
But I also think it's possible that he said that to make himself look less suspicious. And maybe she really didn't want to go visit her, but I don't understand why he would kind of insist that she comes home if she wasn't going to go with him. I don't know. Marion said that there were things that Alex said that seemed odd after the murders. Quote, he said that his number one goal was clearing Paul's name. And I thought that was so strange because my number one goal was to find out who killed my sister and Paul. End quote. After a month-long trial, the jury deliberated for just three hours before they decided on a verdict. On March 3, 2023, Alec was convicted of the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. He was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. During sentencing, Judge Clifton Newton really laid it out for Alec. This is a long quote, but it was all said so well that I didn't want to paraphrase it because it was so beautifully said. He had seen him at different times in court and in different legal settings over the years before he handed down this double life sentence. He said, quote, it might not have been you. It might have been the monster you've become when you take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. Maybe you became another person. I've seen that before. The person standing before me was not the person who committed the crime, though it is the same individual. As a well-known member of the legal community, you've practiced law before me and we've seen each other in various occasions throughout the years. And it was especially heartbreaking for me to see you going from being a grieving father who lost a wife and son to being a person indicted and convicted of killing them. And you've engaged in such duplicitous conduct here in the courtroom, here on the witness stand, and as established by the testimony. Within your own soul, you have to deal with that. And I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to sleep. I'm sure they come and visit you. To which Alec responded, all day and every night, end quote. Judge Newman responded, quote, they will continue to do so. A gregarious, friendly person caused their life to be tangled in such a web, such a situation that you yourself spun. And it's so unfortunate because you had such a lovely family, end quote. I talked in part two about Alec's brother, Randy, and how difficult and shocking it was for him to find out everything that he did about Alec and his never-ending lies. Randy said that as a lawyer, he understands and respects the jury's decision, but he cannot wrap his head around how his brother could have killed his wife and son. Randy said, quote, he knows more than what he's saying. He's not telling the truth, in my opinion, about everything there, end quote. Alec's younger brother, John Marvin, and his surviving son, Buster, both testified in Alec's defense. Randy was not asked to testify, and he believes that it's because his beliefs didn't align perfectly with either side. And I just, I have to say, I feel awful for Alec's brothers and for Buster. I can't even imagine trying to process everything coming out about Alec and dealing with all of that, and then on top of it, trying to deal with the grief of Maggie and Paul's murders, and then the fallout from the initial charges, and then having to sit through this trial, looking at this person that you thought you knew. Alec had himself wrapped in lies at all times, and his whole outward appearance to his family and close friends was one huge lie, and that's a nightmare. And to be honest, I do think it's really unfair, and maybe I'm being naive, but assuming that they genuinely know nothing about what happened here and had no involvement in Alec's other crap, I think it's actually really sad that their entire family is being dragged through the mud. Like, let's give all the bad press and nastiness to Alec. It's what he deserves. He's not a good person. He should be in prison. The end. But like, leave the rest of the family out of it until there's reason to bring them into it. You know what I mean? I just, I just would really like to believe that they did not know. And I can't imagine finding out all of that stuff and then having the press following you around, like making other assumptions. I just think the court of public opinion can really screw people over but then there's also instances where it's like, the court of public opinion was totally right. I don't know. Let's just be nicer to each other, okay? Anyway, I would love to hear other people's opinions on this conviction. Personally, and this is just my theory, my guess, I think that Alec is absolutely guilty. But there is a little part of me that thinks maybe he wasn't the only person involved. But it's not like he can say that on the stand. Do you know what I mean? He can't defend himself by saying, I didn't do this because this person did. Because he was, at the very least, there at the time of the murders. And it's not like he can say, oh, this other person did it without admitting that he was involved. So he has to take the whole fall for all involved parties. It's just an opinion. It's just my theory. The weapons involved haven't been found. His and Maggie's cell phones had that moment of being in different places. His clothes are missing. All of these different things make me have like one little ounce of suspicion that there is more to it. But it's just because this case keeps having more and more added to it that I just assume there's always more. Do I think that he is innocent? 
Absolutely not. But I think that there is more to it because that's how this case has been over and over with more and more layers like a freaking onion. Alec's team has said that they plan to appeal his conviction as soon as possible, of course, and Alec has been put into a maximum security prison. He is in solitary confinement for quote-unquote safety reasons. He will spend the foreseeable future alone in a 10 by 8 foot cell, but even that doesn't stop idiots from writing him fan letters. Yes, you heard me. One of my biggest irritations in life, these ridiculous people who write letters to convicted murderers in prison, even though this guy is absolute garbage, Alec already has himself a few groupies. Dozens of letters, a steady stream of fan mail has been sent to Alec in prison. Fitz News was able to publish some of these letters because of the Freedom of Information Act. These quotes are all from different letters sent by different women. Some of them have written him multiple times, and from what I understand, he has not written back to anyone. So I guess, like, I mean, that's good because at least he's not glomming onto that whole thing. But these letters, seriously, quote, I think I love you. I think about you all day, every day. I swear on my life, I'll never say a single word to anyone, important or not important. I genuinely care for you, end quote. I am just a small town girl from Missouri. I am here if you want to talk or vent XX Lacey, end quote. Another one, quote, you didn't kill your family. Somebody else did it and you don't want to tell it. I give you all the love for not snitching, but then again, sometimes you got to do what you got to do for your freedom, end quote. Huh? That was just a few of many. Seriously? If you are writing a man who is convicted of murdering his wife and child and telling him you're in love with him, I'm begging you to get a therapist. I cannot stand this shit. So on that note, I am so thankful to be done talking about Alec Murdoch, at least for now, because there is a chance that he will appeal, and he is also still facing those other 100-plus charges that need to be dealt with. And with the way that this has all gone, I would not be surprised if there is more that unravels in this case. I don't think that we have heard the last from Alec Murdoch. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your audio podcast. Apple, Spotify, Literally any of the other ones, wherever you take your audio with you, I am on those platforms. And then if you are listening audio only, the YouTube version is a video and I put photos in there as well. I've had people ask me about that um, a little bit in the past couple of weeks. So just so you know, it's everywhere. And then the YouTube version, you get those photos and different things. So just so you have your options, don't forget to subscribe. I really appreciate it. And special thanks to you if you have stayed for all three parts of this series. I will talk to you very soon. Bye.